Can you talk about live streaming, cross-posting, sponsoring, and partnerships? I'm doing my first live stream next week and gathered some sponsors to pay for the band. Wasn't sure how much to charge. I figured it'll be easier once I know how many viewers I can expect. Uh, yes, so that's a great question, Andrew. So Andrew runs a big band. I see he just joined right now, just in time. Just in time for me to answer his question. Um, so... I will say this. Um, I would not necessarily get your hopes too high that things will start off too quickly. You know, um, you have to start somewhere and build slowly uh, and build and build awareness over time that you're doing uh, live streams. And that's something that you're going to uh, consistently do. Um, so first of all, is to make sure that you can get the quality high enough that people could pay for it, especially if you're asking for sponsors. So if you don't at least have one good camera, it's going to be pretty difficult to set up a good live stream. Uh, and I think he's doing it with a big band. If I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew. But, um, you know, you're going to want to get a decent microphone set up. You're going to want to do some test runs, you know, figure out some software. I like to use this software called Ecamm Live. Uh, after it's done, I'll drop my the link to it into the the Facebook uh, comments. So if you're watching this and you want to find that software, but that's where it's going to be. It'll be in the comments uh, down below here and um, down below on Facebook. That is on Instagram. You'll just have to go to find it on Facebook, but um, uh, making sure the quality is high enough. So that means you probably need a DSLR camera. You're going to need a capture card. You're going to need some microphones. You're going to need some software. There's open source software called OBS that you can use that's free that you can figure out how that uses. I'll then, I also personally use this website called Restream uh, to send the signal out to various live streaming websites because right now, yes, it's on Facebook, but it's also on Twitch, which is now connected to my Amazon Music. And uh, it also goes out to... Well, I tried, I tried to send it out to LinkedIn and they didn't approve it. And it goes out to Periscope, which is attached to Twitter. So, you know, just trying to send it out to as many places as you can. You need to invest in that software. So uh, if you're just going to do it in one location, though. Um, great. So there you go. He says he's already got OBS. He says he's got only six people. That's a good place to start. So definitely do a test run before you go because it's going to, there's always something that goes wrong, seemingly. It took me four, at least four or five weeks at the beginning of this back in April to figure out do I need a light? Do I wish I have a light behind me now here? And there's a light over here. And how do I set up? Uh, how do I make the background uh, relatively. Um, appealing you know not that this is the best right? but just like it's, it was better than in my office at school when it was just like kind of random junk everywhere uh, so thinking about what's behind you thinking about the set um, figuring out the live streaming testing out the live streaming making sure it's working because there's nothing worse than starting an event uh, and so it sounds like you already have a person to help you run it so i was going to say having an engineer to run the live stream i watched a great live stream last night uh, from monks jazz which is a club in austin uh, and Andre Hayward played a great trombonist. He used to play with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Anyway, he did a live stream from there last night. Super well set up. So if you want to look at that as a great, that's a great example. Monks Jazz, you can find it on Facebook pretty easily. So I would just head over there and check that out because that would be a good place to start. Uh, sponsors. So make sure that you don't under deliver for your sponsors is the most important thing. Um, making sure you price it low enough to start and then you can raise from there make sure you're very clear about what you're going to offer them for in exchange for the sponsorship if it's just good samaritan behavior or if it's you're going to put a banner in your live stream that has it or you're going to use uh like 
like if you use the software that I use, Ecamm Live, uh, you can overlay uh, some some logos. You could overlay uh, information, or you could put like a scrolling like thank you to our sponsor thing. So just be really clear as to what people are going to get for their money. Um, and yeah, after you do one, it'll be pretty clear. But you know, just keep it in mind. Like last night, if so, Andrew, if you're watching that live stream, you could see how many people were watching, which was a decent amount, but not in the hundreds. You know, there was I, when I looked, there was maybe 50 people on YouTube and 50 people on Facebook, and I don't know how many of those were overlapping. Probably a couple that like started on one and switched to the other. So uh, I would keep your expectations realistic and start getting people to sign up. So if you can get people to save in advance, like the link or do pre-save or something like that, that's going to be helpful for you to um, be able to get a good idea of what it's going to be. Um, and I think it's going to take investment on your part from the first one, you know, like you're going to pay the band, you're going to pay for everything, and then you're going to see what you can do with it after you kind of get some information, you know. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint a price. I couldn't tell you what it would be, quote unquote, worth to the advertiser or the sponsor. It could just be they want to just sponsor music, and that could be a good way. Maybe you want to find a, a, a nonprofit that can be a fiscal sponsor so they could be a tax write-off for them uh, for a person or for a business instead of looking for sponsors for advertising dollars when you're not exactly sure what that might um, be worth you know and it's going to be worth different things to different people so it's it also needs to price yourself at a level where you feel comfortable you know I have sold sponsorships to certain um, outside in music releases we've done that and it's just really important to be super clear about like, this is what you're going to get. This is how much it costs. And uh, I always say over deliver, you know, under promise and over deliver, because if it's the opposite of that, you're never going to get anybody coming back. So um, that's really that's really pretty important. Hi, Nick. How important is the gear for our playing mouthpiece and trombone? I play a professional Yamaha trombone, but been playing the same 12C mouthpiece since I was 12 and now I'm 23. Any thoughts? Well, I've been playing the same mouthpiece for at least that long, first of all. Also, that's cool. Costa Rica. I wanna. I was supposed to come there in June. Things got canceled, but uh, hope to come soon. Um, gear. Okay, so I am always the last person to blame the gear. I always think it's me. You know, um, there's certain things that are not negotiable for me and one of them is uh blaming the gear and so i think you need to find the right tool to match the sound concept you have in your head um, you have to match the sound concept the playing concept uh the equipment is like a tool in that regard but it's not the end all be all it's not going to make you great a great trombone is only as good as you are as a trombonist so i see a lot of people thinking, I need to switch mouthpieces, and you do this, and you do that. Um, but the important thing is for you to be consistent and pick, stick on that mouthpiece, you know. But if your concept changes, like the mouthpiece is too small, I can't get the sound that I want out of this mouthpiece, maybe start exploring some other options. Um, I would say that it's not that important. There's some great videos on YouTube you can find of Irby Green and Bill Watrous playing student model trombones. Uh, student horns, stock mouthpiece, 12C doesn't matter so I would uh, I would just say that the, the the equipment is not really that important I mean it's important to a, if you have a broken trombone you need to fix it so you can play it should be easy to play relatively years and years switching all the time you know uh, and it's really detrimental to their growth I think uh, because they're constantly switching equipment and the equipment has nothing to do with how much time you've put in as a player you know so that's the answer how does one play tunes acapella 
All right, that's a really good question. Um, it's something that I've been working on. I started thinking about it because uh, I found some videos of Wycliffe Gordon and Steve Teray, two of my teachers who um, had different opportunities that they presented concerts of solo trombone. And so um, for me, that was super um, inspiring. And we also worked on a little bit in lessons with uh, Professor Teray. We uh, worked a little bit on the solo thing. So I developed a few tunes that I could play solo, but I only have a few in the repertoire, but it's been very, very useful uh, for being able to um, develop stuff for clinics, like when you're doing a masterclass or a clinic and you don't have a rhythm section, like having something that you can play that you feel really good about, um, that involves improvisation, that involves some organization, um, is really cool. So it's something that I want to get my students to do more, and uh, it's a good reminder to make them do it. So if any of my students are watching, watch out. It's coming next. Um, so things that I think about when I'm playing a tune a cappella, I mean, there's actually the first thing is being able to play it without the metronome and play in time, play the changes, be clear. Those are kind of the prerequisites for what we're going to go into next. So if you can't play a blues by yourself or even just play a blues with a metronome, there's probably not a whole lot of hope that you're going to be able to put together one of these a cappella arrangements until you can do that. So practice getting super clear, practice getting super uh comfortable that's one thing being on your own playing on your own creating the time creating the feel creating the energy uh, and from there then what i like to think about is the different um the different uh, textures that's what i was looking for i don't know orchestration textures of like what can you do so when i think about that if i just brainstorm quickly some different textures uh, i'm thinking like uh, okay, I can play pedal notes, I can play high notes, I can play fast, I can play slow, I can play in time, I can play out of time, I can play rubato, I can just solo, I can play pre-written out stuff, I can play, um, I can try to like outline the harmony, or I can play melodies. So then I think about all the things that I want to incorporate into that arrangement. So it might be the melody, some improvisation, some kind of arrangement. There's certain tunes that I play solo, like uh, I started doing this in like 2015 or something. I did, there's a version of Stella by Starlight that I put together solo, inspired by Slide Hampton. I heard her Slide do an arrangement. It was actually a bootleg from a live gig and Slide was playing by himself. And so it was killing. Uh, and I was inspired to put my own arrangement together. So finding some uh, inspiration is super important, you know, to be able to do, to get ideas, right? And so like I said, I was talking to uh, my teachers, Steve Trey, Wycliffe Gordon about this. Uh, or watching their videos rather to be inspired and um, so you get the texture te different textures you practice different textures that you can do um, if you check out some of the arrangements there's like fast playing that kind of outlines changes there's melody there's soloing and then you got to decide on an order and sometimes i don't do any improvisation like i play single pedal of a rose uh, and i originally arranged that for my here and now record but i wrote it for three bass clarinets and three trombones and rhythm section. And when do I ever get those? Uh, when do I ever have those on the road? Never. So I figured out uh, Duke originally played it as a solo piano arrangement. So I decided I could also figure out how to play it as a solo trombone arrangement. So um, one thing at a time, you know, you got to uh, think about textures, figure out how you can be super clear and clean uh, with your approach and then put it all together. And then you have to do it a bunch of times. So that's how you play acapella. So have you ever played reggae or ska? Yes. What would be keys for improvising? Listen to soloists in that style and transcribe them. There's a famous uh, trombone solo on Sublime. Um, 
what's that song? The famous Sublime song. It was a trombone solo. I would learn that. I had a phase where I was listening to ska a lot in high school. And so I was playing in a bunch of bands like that. So yes, transcribe that music. Just like if you were playing funk, I would tell you to go transcribe Fred Wesley. There's there's already people that do, do it super well. So go and copy them and then you can make it your own. How do you recommend an instrumentalist go about creating a personal practice routine? What I do is I usually suggest creating, uh, using a uh, practice journal to track everything that you're doing. Um, and then trying to figure out what makes sense, what's the, the best order to do things, what's the most efficient order to do things. Because what I started to do is I started to notice I was putting a lot of hours, quote unquote, in the practice room, but I wasn't having a lot of time that was really actually dedicated to the music, you know? Like it was just me kind of goofing around, playing piano on the phone, you know, not really actually really digging into the music. So for me, that was pretty important. Uh, to just list it out. So I just track it super, super specifically, like, all right, it's 1250 right now. So from 1250 to 1255, I worked on the F major scale. And then I just kind of keep track of everything I've done. And what I found was three sessions for 90 minutes was about the sweet spot for me. Uh, it was, that was a good amount of concentrated time. Sometimes I would go to two hours, but after two hours, I was just kind of wasting time. So I decided to start making 90 minutes to two hour blocks that I could squeeze in because like 30, 45 minutes, it just wasn't enough for me to kind of dig in and really uh, absorb anything. But it's different for everybody. So if there's anything about my teaching style is that I really am a person that believes in that it's different for everyone and you have to figure out what works for you in terms of chops, in terms of conception, in terms of sound, in terms of, I mean, there's certain like guiding principles, but you have to ultimately find a way for it to work for you. So same with practicing, you know, some people can only concentrate for 45 minutes. So great, do five 45 minute sessions in a day rather than one long session, you know. So I, I break things up to like trombone stuff, and like technical stuff and like jazz stuff or you could you could make different categories if you want but always dealing with the instrument first then dealing with like learning hard stuff that has to do with being free to then improvise later if that makes sense so if it's like patterns or if it's getting familiar with new scales or uh, transcriptions etc and then like in that third section of practice it might be learning tunes and just playing and applying all of that stuff that I worked on in that second practice session, which I was able to do because I worked on the fundamentals in the first practice session. So that's kind of how I look at it. It's like everything builds on it, builds on itself. And uh, one thing at a time, that's all you can do, right? Practice one thing at a time, track it, be as, uh, and be it as efficient and as effective as you can. How do you, how relaxed do you feel while playing? Have you ever felt fatigued and thought you need to go back to the basics in a more relaxed approach? Uh, for sure, I always want to be more relaxed. Uh, even like people tell me I, sometimes that I look relaxed when I'm playing, but I don't feel relaxed. Um, mentally, anyway. Maybe like physically, I've trained myself to play more or less relaxed, but sometimes like you just kind of get tense, you know? And But yes, I come from a school of brass playing of being relaxed, of being tension-free, going for the easiest flow of air. So um, for me, I try to think about that relaxed approach from the beginning. So Harold's asking about that. And, you know, when you're playing long tones or you're playing flexibilities, you gotta, gotta go to the basics and always approach it with everything from that ease of playing, from that nice, smooth um, approach. You know, it's all, it's all good. So you should um, 
I think, I should is such a relative word. I think that you might have success if you go from every single thing you do, from scales to tunes to improvising to playing parts with a relaxed approach because um, it's going to help help avoid certain problems that arise when people play with too much tension. I've had students, I've had friends that have lost uh, their ability to play because uh, they've developed focal dystonia from playing too hard a lot of times. Uh, so as relaxed as you can, breathe as easy as you can. And uh, I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of any of those like breathing gym sort of things. Like I feel like, and the reason is not that because I don't think they have a sound reasoning. Uh, it's because uh, I think it develops tension. That's all. And I think I'm just against tension. So <laughs> any quick tips on playing really up tunes? Countdown, 26-2. Well, those are really hard and really fast. Uh, so for up-tempo tunes in general that aren't those ones, <laughs> um, I say that you need to practice You need to practice slow what you want to play fast, meaning um, you need to practice the language you want to play with the approach of playing it fast. So for me, that means a multiple tongue. But I need to practice it. All double tongue, but slow, so that I can start to play faster tempos. But if I don't do it double tongue slow, it's like there's certain trombone things that just won't happen very well. Or they happen differently with the double tongue versus single tongue. So you have to practice it slow so that you've dealt with the issue so that when you go to playing fast, it's easier, right? Because you've already played it slow and figured out how to play it clean with the double tongue. So oftentimes what I find is that there's like a, students often have like a gray zone of where it's like double tongue, single tongue, and then there's this area where we need to practice that crosses over. That's like the single tongue needs to get faster and the double tongue needs to get slower. So we can kind of get rid of that gray zone, but then also um, practicing slow what you want to play fast. There's no way, if you can't improvise on 26 2 at this time of tempo, and play constant eighth notes through, there's not really a whole lot of hope for being able to think your brain can handle it twice as fast, you know? So you got to give your brain a chance, number one. Uh, and uh, you got to practice. I'll just say it one more time, and then I got to jump off here. But uh, practice slow what you want to play fast. So I hope that helps you. And uh, we'll be back next week, every Friday, at uh, usually at 1 p.m. Eastern. Today we were a little late because of that masterclass, but usually around at 1 p.m. Eastern on Instagram and Facebook. So appreciate you all, and see you next time.